humanity. But at this point in our study through Genesis, you're starting to feel the weight of sin. And I know for me, and I hope, I hope a lot of us might be able to say this. For me, I know these stories, man. I, I read, read through Genesis every year and have, have studied it, read it, learned it from childhood. But I don't know, you feel like there's a, a heaviness as you're going through this. I think, I think the older you get, and it could be from like 17 years old to 19 years old, or 30 to 40, or 70 to 80, like as we progress, I think that by nature, C.S. Lewis talked about this, we feel the weight of depravity in the world in, in, in greater detail. You just feel it, you know, you notice things, you look around, you, 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 go, you know, used to make fun of my grandparents because they would read the obituaries, you know. Like, why are they doing that? Why, do we, why are we drawn to news uh, headlines that are uh, more reflective of the brokenness of man? And, and why does that news sell? Well, it's the human condition. It's the plight that we're on. And for a lot of us, man, that, that comes into our home, you know. That, come, that, that, that hits close to home. And remember, uh, two sports stories. I like sports, so y'all bear with me if you're not a, a sports person. I think it'll still help, help you think about this. The first one was, I remember when I was a kid, there was a coach named Joe Gibbs. He, he coached the Washington Redskins. They have a different name now. Uh, it's the Washington football team, but it was called the Redskins then. And he won Super Bowls with them. He was considered one of the greatest coaches. And, and he also got into NASCAR, and he was a team owner in NASCAR, and he won NASCAR championships. Now, this is impressive. In two elite fields of sports, he has gone to the top. Well, when, when he starts to transition into NASCAR, he, he loses his, he seems to lose his passion for football, so he goes all in with racing. Some of y'all remember this happening? And the Washington football team does this. They just crashed. I mean, the whole organization just collapsed, and they couldn't win, and they had been Super Bowl, you know, like contenders consistently. So they went through several coaches, and there was nothing happening, no traction. So then, uh, so they hired Joe Gibbs to come back. So there was this excitement around Joe Gibbs coming back. He's going to come back to Washington. He's going to turn his thing around. We're going to win Super Bowl again. People are going to make jokes about us anymore. But then Joe Gibbs comes back, and for whatever reason, the game had changed. The, the business was different, but he, he was not successful. And so it was almost like the second go-around of failure was harder than the first because it was the heightened expectation of, oh, we're going to get this thing fixed. And then it didn't happen. And there's also, there's another sports story uh, that, that uh, I wanted to share, and it was, uh, I, I enjoy watching uh, the Ultimate Fighting Championship. I enjoy following it and don't enjoy doing it, not interested in that, just enjoy, I don't know, just a man, I guess. I like watching a couple grown dudes that know what they're doing go, you know, go to battle in, in the octagon. And so, it was a guy I really liked early on, his name was Rich Franklin, and he was a believer. Cool story, he'd been a math teacher, a high school math teacher. And he was like, I got into MMA fighting, and then he, he becomes a champion. And he wins the championship, and he defends it a few times. Well, then along comes uh, this guy named Anderson Silva, who not many people knew, but he's gone on to become what some consider one of the top fighters of all time. And Anderson Silva beat Rich Franklin so bad. I remember he, he broke his nose. His nose was completely flat on his face. And I remember he just completely manhandled him. And when the fight was over, they're talking about the rematch because when the champion gets dethroned, he's going to get a rematch. And I remember thinking, oh, no, no, you need to retire. You can't beat him. 
You know, this is not Rocky. This is not Rocky and Clubber Lang, a.k.a. Mr. T. You know, like, you're not coming back from this. That man put your face where your ear goes, you know, like you're not going to win. And there was this, there was this sense of why even try? He's going to own you. And at this point in the story, it's like what we're seeing is, oh, maybe here's our hope of redemption. We're going to see that tonight. Nope. Wrong. Bigger failure than before. Oh, well, then maybe then we just need, nope, you, we can't win. You can't win. And you start to feel the desperation of we're going to have to be rescued, when I say we, humanity, by something greater than what's already here. Something from the outside is going to have to enter into this thing to pull us out. And y'all, we're four chapters, we're four pages into history, and we're upside down, sideways, Folks are killing each other. It's a, crazy, it's, a, it's a crazy story, and we'll dive right in. When we come to the story of Genesis 4, we, we realize that a very clear pattern emerges concerning man and sin. While we may win battles with sin and temptation, it would take someone greater to win the war against sin. A pattern has begun that will continue through the book of Genesis. Sin is destructive. And sin rules over the lives of people, and we need the mercy of God. And we need someone who can win the war that we can't win. As we walk through the story tonight, we will see a lot that points to the law that God's going to eventually give Israel. So as we walk through Genesis 4, we're seeing this, this continued foreshadowing. We've been seeing this already in our study of Genesis. Last week, as we saw the first sort of proclamation of the gospel, we start to see foreshadowing of what God would do in the law that he's gonna give Israel. When this happens, this, you'll hear, uh, there's a literary term called a motif. Motif, you ever hear motif? Motifs are literary vices that, that often accompany something uh, deeper like foreshadowing or give us illustrative understanding or thematic material. There's something thematic that's going on. So as we're walking through the story of Cain and Abel, what we're going to see is certain things that are going to point us forward to the law that God's going to give Israel. That's the covenant that God's going to make with Israel. And when God makes the covenant with Israel, with that covenant is associated blessing. So like if Israel is faithful to follow the, the, the covenant of God, then there's going to be blessing that comes with that. If not, there's going to be separation from the blessing, but still a maintained hand of grace and mercy. It's a really important thing for us to understand that sometimes blessing is removed because of our actions, but that doesn't mean that the love of God is removed. It doesn't mean the grace of God is removed. Even for unbelievers who aren't necessarily under the love of God, they're under the common grace of God. When we see these motifs start to form, and we're going to see it play out in the story. I want to, before we dive into it, I want to give you seven of these um, that, that we're going to see. The first one is this. Sacrifices would be offered to God for, uh, for and from a heart of faith, not just from self-serving religious activity. Sacrifices would represent the best that the giver had to offer. Sacrifices are going to be something that will represent the best thing that the giver has to offer. Uh, number two, Israelite community would be a community of faith and family that would have responsibility toward one another, and they would strive to protect and preserve the lives of their brothers and sisters. Number three, blood spilled in murder requires and demands justice. Blood spilled in murder requires and demands justice. Number four, people guilty of crimes must be punished. This is foundational to healthy societies. 
Number five, the punishment needs to be measured and balanced with mercy and hope. Now, if you, here's what you're going to see. You're going to see, like, not only a, 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 this points to the way that God would institute the law with Israel, but our own laws in our nation are built off of this law. You know, we have a, we have a law that prohibits cruel and unusual punishment. So punishment, we, we use terms like punishment has to fit the crime. You know, and people, people say things like, um, if you don't want to do the time, don't do the crime. Well, no, if you don't want to do the, no, 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 no. Don't do the crime because crime is bad. See, we like associate like, what's the payout? How do I weigh the consequences? What's the deferred uh, like, like gratification here? No, like there's a right way and there's a wrong way. And because people are going to choose the wrong way, often regardless of the consequences, then God's going to be working to establish a means of grace and mercy in the middle of man's failure. So, so it's not just justice and law, it's mercy and grace that we're going to see as well. Um, uh, and, and one of the things that we'll see in, in Scripture when the law gets handed down is cities of refuge where God will provide refuge for those that are under the law, under certain uh, aspects of the law. Number six, life apart from the blessing of God becomes self-serving, meaningless, and without protection. There's safety and obedience to God. Life apart from the blessing of God becomes self-serving, meaningless, and without protection. And number seven, a pattern of the older brother being rejected in favor of the younger brother. In this, not only um, able to be shown uh, the favor by the Lord, like, like Cain, uh, Abel receiving the favor of the Lord over against Cain, but Abel's replacement, Seth, will become the son of promise. And so the older son serving the younger son. We'll see that begin to be a pattern in scripture. So let's dive into our text. Verse one. Now Adam knew his wife and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So it says that in verse one, Adam knew his wife. And that word knew is the same word that we will use to say, well, do you know the Lord as your personal savior. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a spiritual word that we know has sexual connotation. This would help us understand the spiritual sacred nature of a sexual union between a man and a woman. This is spiritual terminology. And so this is, this is the, the word that God uses to describe the relationship between Adam and Eve. Now, Eve is full of hope. It's, she says, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And I want to unpack that a little bit because the way that's worded, uh, we need to drill into that just a little bit, the way that it's worded in our English translation. I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Most of us are using the ESV. Some of us are using New American Standard. And both of those, we need a little bit of explanation. E, bottom line, Eve is full of hope at the prospect that this sign could be the fulfillment of the promise that may, God made in chapter three that we studied last week. This is the seed of the woman. You think about it. God says to the woman, I'm going to bring the seed of the woman. And he says to Adam and Eve, I'm going to bring the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. Then Eve gets pregnant, goes through the cycle of childbirth, gives birth to a child. She would naturally think this is the fulfillment of the promise of God. If there's ever been an underachieving, disappointing child, 
you, oh, with the help of the Lord, I've given birth to the Messiah. Nope, missed, missed it. Nope, nope. And, and so, but there's some, some things that we can understand in the way that she says this because the translation of Eve's statement is a little bit debated. Some people believe that her statement is arrogant. It's as if she's saying, I've created life in the same manner that Yahweh has created the first man. But the more conservative and popular translation that we would hold to is this. She is recognizing that God has graciously brought forth a man through her, but it's tricky because the little, literal translation does not include the words with the help of the Lord. So this is where people get confused. People think, that, so if you look at the little translation, we remove the words with the help of the Lord, and it says something more like this, I've gotten a man, the Lord. So oftentimes people will translate by separating I've gotten a man, and they'll say, see, Eve is just being uh, arrogant. She thinks that she's the, like the maker of her own destiny. But what she's doing is she's recognizing I've given birth to the Lord. This is her, like the moment of her hope where she's going, I've given birth to the deliverer. Salvation has come. The problem is the scripture teaches us in Romans chapter 5 and in 1 Corinthians 15 that in Adam, everybody sinned. And this child is being born in the lineage of Adam. And so Cain is being born with an inherited sin nature. Listen to me, Red Oak. If you're here tonight and you're visiting with us, we believe that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. And where that gospel begins with this reality, that all people sinned in Adam. And we're born into iniquity and in deep, dire need of salvation that we cannot provide for ourselves. You can't save yourself. Eve says, oh, finally, I've delivered the Savior. I've brought forth the Lord. No, you haven't. You haven't because what's going to have to happen is Adam's lineage is going to have to be broken. And at Christmas, we celebrate the conception of Mary, whereby the Spirit of God put a child in her womb who was sinless and was not born in the lineage of Adam's sin. The Spirit of God miraculously conceived in Mary in the purest, most holy and sacred way, the child who would become the second Adam. We're all under one Adam or the other. We're under the first Adam as sinners separated from God, or we're under the second Adam, who, and th those of us who are in the second Adam have been saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. This child is the seed of Adam. Some commentators say the best translation of Cain's name is Simply, here he is. They weren't super creative. You know, Adam's name was like, what, what do you mean? Like the first dude or whatever. You know, like the man, okay? Now, Cain's means here he is. Like, what should we name him? I mean, Adam was so creative. Aardvark, zebra, camel, platypus. You know, like he did really good on the animal thing. Here he is. <laughs> like that. that's what he came up with, you know? Like, but, but what it's saying is it's, it's connecting to Eve's statement with the help of the Lord, I've given birth to the deliverer. Here he is. It's a, it's, the name is pointing to what she hopes will be the destiny of this child. She's setting herself up for horrible disappointment. Jim Boyce says, in one form or another, every parent has great hope for his or her child. But in the whole history of the human race, there's never been a greater measure of human hope than the hope of Adam and Eve at the birth of their first child, Cain. Verse 2, a couple of interesting thoughts. 
Cain's occupation reflects the result of the fall. He's a tiller of the ground. Abel's occupation is in keeping with the original purpose of having dominion over every creature that God had brought forth. When we get to verse 3, Cain shows us the first example of man-centered religion. The bottom line is, this is religious practice that is formal, but does not come from the heart of humble submission to the Lord and heartfelt worship and adoration of God. Abel expresses a heart of humility in worship as well as thanksgiving and bringing his offering to the Lord. The challenging question of application for us is, do we come here on Sundays to worship with God's people? Or do we just attend church because it's the cultural thing to do? Do we pray and spend personal time with the Lord each day, opening God's word to learn more from him and know him more and worship him and praise him? Are all these things driven from a heart of worship and humility, or are they just religious practice. But I want to answer this question, why did God accept Abel's offering but not Cain's? Because I was raised to believe it's because Abel's was a blood offering and Cain's was not, but that doesn't seem to line up with what comes later in the system that God puts in place for offerings. There were grain offerings for certain things and there were other types of offerings that weren't blood offerings. So Hebrews 11:4 sheds light onto this. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable, acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which, we, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So Abel, we, we learn in Hebrews 11.4, why Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's wasn't. Abel's sacrifice was accepted for two reasons. Number one, Hebrews 11.4, it was an offering of true worship. From the heart, he was worshiping God. He brought this in worship to the Lord. It was true worship. And the second reason, he offered it by faith. He offered it by faith. And the Bible tells us in Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of God or the word of Christ. So Abel is responding to, in faith, the word of God in worship. This is what worship is. If we're not worshiping in response to the word of God, this is why at Red Oak, the way we preach and teach the word of God is central to how we do what we do on Sundays. It's central to how we do uh, uh, our small groups, our discipleship groups in homes through the week. It's central to how our youth group functions. It's central to how we do children's ministry. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Abel is responding to the word of God in worship and Cain's just walking through religious activity. That's a, there's a challenge in that for all of us because we've grown up in a deeply religious culture. Today at breakfast, I greeted a, a, Muslim, a man with a Muslim name. We were, we were in Nashville this morning. Tuck and I were in Nashville, and we're having breakfast, and they're, they're serving us breakfast, and, and this man comes around, and his name is Usama. So I greeted him, in, in, uh, I, I greeted him with an Islamic greeting, and he looked at me and went, and, like, and I thought, okay, either... He's walked away from Islam or he's a really bad Muslim. And I thought, there's a lot of Christians like that, you know, with the Christian faith. Like, I oh, am. Yeah, God is great. God is good. Whatever. You know, like, I pledge allegiance to the flag. Like, we don't take it serious. And so Abel is acting in worship by faith. Cain was not. Additionally, the scripture teaches us that Jesus is the better offering in providing salvation for us. Uh, later in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, the scripture says that Abel, there's a better Abel because Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice and the ultimate blood has been spilled for our salvation. So this tells us that Abel responded to what God had asked for in the offering. Let me illustrate this 
this way. Your wife says to you, what do you want for supper? You tell her, I don't really care. Anything as long as it's good. So then when she brings you something that she thinks is good, you have no reason or right to complain about it. This is not the way God is responding to Cain. It's not like God's saying, you guys just bring me an offering. It'll be good. Bananas. I don't even like bananas, Cain. I just made those things as a joke, man. Like, What's happening here is they are responding to God in specificity. This is not like a general, ah, let's throw something together. This is acting in worship and obedience. And so Cain, we know, is being rejected because he did not act in the way that Abel did. Cain offered his sacrifice his own way, which was contrary to the word of God. The second part of verse 5, it says this. But, Cain, for, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. This is a result, more evidence of Cain's lack of faith. He became jealous and that jealousy led to anger and that anger led to a response that brought a warning from God. Verse six, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Derek Kidner makes an interesting observation here. Eve had to be talked into her sin. Cain would not be talked out of his sin. The picture of crouching in our minds is sort of like the picture of an animal about to pounce. But it's also the picture in Hebrew literary tradition of a demonic figure or being. The idea is a connection between the serpent and the seed of the woman and the crouching of sin waiting to pounce on Cain and take him away from obedience to the Lord. This relates to the desire of the woman in Genesis 3.16. The Lord is warning Cain that this will be a catastrophic and fatal desire if it's yielded to. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Cain doesn't want to master his sin. He wants to embrace it. It's a picture that we can all relate to. Master your sin. If you don't master your sin, it will master you. We can all relate to that. I don't want to master it. I don't care it's crouching. I'm determined to do this. I'm going to do this. I don't care what the Word of God says. I don't care what the Holy Spirit says. I'm going to ignore conviction and accountability and wisdom. I'm going to do what I want to do. Have we all been there? Yep, don't lie. If you're lying, that's bad. We've all done that. I know this is wrong. And we harden our heart, and there's consequences that come with that. It says unfathomable, though. He should have taken care of his brother. He's the big brother. should have looked after his kid brother. Abel probably looked up to Cain. He probably grew up wanting to be like Cain. He said, hey, let's go out to the field, man. And in his heart, he's already determined evil because he's rejected the warning. There's wisdom in heeding the warnings of godly people in Scripture. So go out into the field. This is the, this is the guy that's supposed to. Where am I, talking out at my sister's house a couple weeks ago. Started telling stories of, you know, as kids, like me taking up for her. Like that's just, that's like woven into the fabric of family. He murders his brother. He kills him. And then he lies, verse 9, to cover himself. This looks, Adam and Eve used fig leaves, right? Using a lie to cover 
himself. The Lord said to Cain, where's Abel, your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. He lies to cover himself up, but God knows. This is like such a clear biblical principle. It's so critical that we understand this. And that we don't, I don't, like, we need to teach our kids this. We don't need to threaten them with this. It's not like the elf on the shelf. I'll be real careful how I talk about this. I'm at supper, we're at supper last night. We're sitting across the table from two couples who are a little bit behind where we are in life. Their kids are like 10 and under. And one of them starts talking about the elf on the shelf. Now, if you don't know what this is, I'll tell you, and you can draw your own conclusions. It's where they, like, the parents put like a little creepy looking dude in the house and they say, he's watching you to the kids. Okay, like, all right, he's watching you. And the guy starts at supper last night. He's like, oh, yeah, man, we got, we, their son's name was a Storm. He's like, we got Storm to do the dishes because we told him the elf on the shelf's watching you. Look, I'm, I'm going to leave this at this. I don't want to teach my kids that creepy old dudes watch them in their bed at night and stuff like that. And that if they do good, they'll be rewarded by the creepy old dude. Okay? All right. Like, so, so, so I want to be careful even that I don't impose that onto the way God sees us. It's not like, hey, kids, God's watching you. He's going to literally thump you in the head if you screw up. It's not that. It's you are under the constant caring gaze of a loving father who the Bible tells us in the book of Hebrews will correct us when we need to be corrected for our own good and that oftentimes our actions bring consequences. That's a biblical principle that is healthy and good when it's taught the right way. And Cain's ignoring it. He's rejecting it. God knows. Cain can lie, but God knows. Verse 10. What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you're cursed from the ground, which has opened up its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. God, God says to Cain, you, the blood of your brother cries out to me. This, is, this gives us hope because this reminds us that no injustice is hidden from God's eyes. Hebrews 12, 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. If the blood of Abel cried out to God, how much more the blood of the cross of Christ cries out, and whose sin is that therefore? Not Cain's. Cain's but yours and mine Cain is cursed the blessing is removed God is the righteous judge the stage is increasingly being set for the gospel to be fulfilled man is incapable of saving himself he moves from accusation to judgment only God can do this Cain responds, and his response is not one of repentance, though some would argue that it is. And, and, and some people will argue, and, and this, is, this is where you've got to meet this out, study this out. It's be good discussion this week in, in our small groups. The word for punishment is 
uh, is also the word for iniquity. Some argue that the word meaning iniquity is as if Cain is suggesting repentance. The, in, my sin is too much for me to bear. But let's compare Cain's reaction here to David's psalm of repentance in Psalm 51 after he too had committed murder. And he said, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is wicked in your sight, that you may be proved just when you speak and righteous when you judge. It's a completely different reaction. What Cain does is he pushes away from from remorse and rather drives himself into self-preservation. What Cain is doing is more like what David does when he tries to hide his adultery by having Uriah killed. He complains as an unrepentant man, and in this, the curse of Adam is intensified. God references the ground. He went out from the presence of the Lord. The idea is that he was restless. He was a wanderer. You ever have a restless night? You ever have a restless night? Some people are like, I can't drink coffee after six. I'll just toss and turn. Be so tired. You ever have that happen? You're so sleepy. You're exhausted, but you just can't sleep. Imagine life is like that. Life is like that for Cain. Verse 15 and 16, what's happening here? I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from, any, uh, went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. What we see here is the mercy of God, the common grace of God. Ross, even in his commentary, titles this section, Unbelief Continues Under Divine Protection. Unbelief continues under divine protection, and Cain intensifies his rebellion. If you're a Christian and you watch somebody going down a destructive path of rebellion, they refuse to soften, they refuse to humble, and you're so confused by that, it's because you have the mind of Christ, but this is a common thing with those who have hardened their hearts, stiffened their necks towards God. They'll continue headlong further down that path. That's what Cain does because literally God tells him to go wander, and he goes and establishes a city. He leaves the presence of God, but he didn't simply leave the geographic location. He defies the Lord's instruction. He was to be a fugitive and a wanderer, but instead he settles and builds a city and names the city a word that is a play on the word for fugitive. Oh yeah? You want me to wonder? Watch this. And he drives a stake in the ground and establishes a city called the Wanderer. It's defiance. It's continued defiance. Jude 11 even refers to the way of Cain, this progressive rebellion against God. And if you're studying through this and wrestling with, is Cain repentant? Is he not? And I'm just telling you, exegetically, I don't think he is. And, 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 and the results of his lineage measured over against Seth's lineage seem to prove that because the rest of the chapter we'll cover very briefly. It, it shows us the result of Cain's lineage. Verse 17, we'll read down to verse 24. Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. See the pattern established? I'll build a city. God says, I'm a wonder. I'll build a city. Name it. What I want to name it. Then his son does the same thing. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahu, Mahujael. Mahujael fathered Methushael. Methushael fathered Lamech. 
And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada and the name of the other Zillah. I'm telling you, when I practiced and read these, that sounded really good. I think I said them right then. I'm pretty sure I didn't just now. Um, don't judge. Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech had two wives, Ada and Zillah. Lamech said to his wives, rather, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Cain and his descendants become industrious and materialistic. And through his line, we have metal-forged weapons, technological advances, music, and the arts. And it drives the development of cities and secular societies and humanistic influence. Don't think that Cain's disobedience doesn't last and spread for generations. And when we compare this over against the lineage of Seth that we'll see later in chapter 5, here's what we find out. That Seth's line and Cain's line run parallel in these two scriptures. And there's one interesting point. If you go down about seven generations, there's a Lamech in each line. The one Lamech celebrates polygamy and murder and, and writes pop songs about it. And they sing those songs at parties on the instruments that they've made with the gifts that God's given them. And the other Lamech has a son and he names him, maybe the Lord will bring renewal to this world that name is Noah you see there's these two lineages that begin to separate and Seth's line in the place of Abel begins to represent what God is going to do to bring uh, to bring uh, redemption into the world and Cain's line begins to reflect what it looks like when people pursue the material offerings of the world and don't get me wrong Cain's people are happy man they're like the wonderful whites of West Virginia come on they're partying, they're having a big time. And it's not to say that there weren't some godly people in Cain's line. And it's not to say, look, by the time of Noah, there's eight people that love Jesus. But whose line are those eight people in? Seth's line. We see the lineage of the younger favored above that of the older. In Cain, we see that marriage is mocked by polygamy. Murder is celebrated. The names of these people and their accomplishments show a zeal and a joy for life, but a godlessness. Some of the most happy people I've ever been around are people that just party really good, but don't know the Lord. They've just found a way to enjoy this life. But ultimately, that's hopeless because we're eternal and you can enjoy this life in a deeply fulfilling way. The people, Cain, the people of Cain build cities and civilizations that were self-indulgent and in defiance of the very commands of God. But Seth, as a substitute for evil, or I'm sorry, Seth, as a substitute for Abel, his line worships the Lord. The indication in verse 26, let's read the last two verses. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. So Seth also was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. It's just really interesting because when you drill into this, what you find out is that people were literally recognizing Yahweh specifically. That from Seth's line forward, indication is that people knew 
the Lord personally, had relationship with God. The idea that they called on the name of the Lord is to call, to proclaim, to read, to summon, to worship. All are meanings of this, wor- this word. Here's the hope. When everything seems lost, here's the, here's the hope. The last verse of the chapter is the hope. The dude killed his brother. The world's spinning out of control. He builds a city. They're out of control. The world is broken. Materialism, sexism, polygamy, everything's out of control. But there's some people who are calling on the name of the Lord. And in our generation, there has to be some people who are calling on the name of the Lord. There's hope when it seems hopeless. Today, little and tell this story and give you two concluding thoughts, just points. Katie and Little and Hack made it to Kilby, so they're with Kilby and Greg after about 50 hours of travel. It was really cool. Thank you all for praying for them. But when they got to the, when they got to the um, airport, Katie's COVID test didn't get there in time, like the whatever special type of COVID test you got to get. It didn't make it, and so she wasn't going to get to go, and they left her. They're shuffling suitcases around to make sure they're getting everything to Kilby and and Greg that they need. They go through security. This has been a 48-hour wait. Little and Hack had gotten theirs a day before, and so Katie's just at the gate. She had gone and gotten a second test, supposed to be a two- to four-hour test, no results, and they said Katie was weeping (coughs) as they go, and they go through security, (coughs) and at the last, last minute, hers came through. And when it did, she was able to run through, get through security and run to the gate and she got to go with them. And I feel like there's times in the redemption story and history where if you're really, if you're, if you're submitting to the text and living under it, you feel that like, oh my God, what are you doing? Why, why are you just, why, why God? There's always redemption. God doesn't waste space on the pages of Scripture void of redemption. Like There's hope, people. We have hope. We're not living in a hopeless situation. No matter what your situation is, there's hope. There's this one little line, and at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord because they realized the most skilled people, the richest people, the greatest gifts that the world could provide will not provide lasting hope, but God will, Yahweh will, Jesus will. I'll give you two points of conclusion from Ross. Number one, two points. Number one, those who worship must have as their goal always to please God so that they will not allow sin like envy and hatred to work its ruinous ways in their lives. Read it again. Those who worship must have as their goal always to please God so that they will not allow sins like envy and hatred to work its ruinous way in their lives. And number two, in an affluent and self-indulgent society, the righteous must preserve the knowledge of the Lord. In an affluent and self-indulgent society, the righteous must preserve the knowledge of the Lord. Let's live as righteous people who call on the name of the Lord, proclaim the hope of the gospel, and tell the world about Jesus, and live on mission, and live differently with our hope on something that is lasting and eternal, namely Jesus and his gospel.